totally wrong, right? But you know, even a little bit of the Bible, we know these are lies against God, that God is perfect in righteousness, but delights in evil. There's no way those go together, right? To read a couple of verses here, uh, Isaiah 5 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Psalm 5.4 says, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. And we could go on and on sharing verse after verse that says the exact opposite of what these people are saying. So how could they say such things? I want you to consider with me that perhaps these weren't their exact words that they used. That these Jewish exiles weren't so biblically illiterate that they didn't know this basic truth about God. That these weren't likely the exact words and phrases that they used, but they were the big idea of it, of what was being said. These weren't the exact words that they said, but this is what they were communicating. And you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, imagine you sit down to a meal that someone's prepared, right? The table's all set, and you voice audibly or under your breath, I wish we were going out to eat tonight. I wish we could order some takeout. What's communicated? It's... Uh, it's not the words, it's the, what's being communicated is this food stinks, right? Your cooking stinks. Ouch. Guys, these people are much more like us than we can think initially, right? And just perhaps they say the same kind of things that we say or the same kind of thoughts that, that come into our mind. And my point is that God's preserved this word for us, and it's for us. <laughs> it's, it's for us. These, we need to hear these words. It's not just for those unbelieving people that uh, said these outlandish things uh, about God. They're for these people, right? For you and for me, that we need to hear these words. We say things like, this is so unfair, I deserve to be treated differently. I should have gotten that A on my test. I should have got that promotion at work. I shouldn't have gotten that ticket. And what we say, maybe on the surface doesn't bring up God, but under the surface says, where is this God of justice? Or we could say, those people have everything. When will things turn out like that for me? They make friends so easy. Their parents let them do so much. Instead of seeing a lustful heart that needs humbling, we see injustice. We're quick to climb on the judgment throne and bring God's will into question and the events in our lives instead of doing the opposite. So they say, where is this God of justice? And as they do, they attack God's character. This is why he's worried. This is what's going on. This is why he's fed up and he's moved with zeal to take action. And that's our next point. Brings up our second main point is, so what does God do about this? How is is God gonna respond? Let's read together verses one through six. 
Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring their offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who press the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Verse one starts off by saying, behold, or pay attention, take notice of, of this. And we're ready to ask, as, he, as God's got our attention, how's he gonna respond? Our first thing that we're gonna look at is who? Who is coming? Which takes us back to that question, right? Where is the God of justice? God's response, I'm coming. I'm coming. That's where I'm at. It says again and again in this, in verse one, it says that he'll suddenly come to his temple. It also says in the same verse, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In verse two, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? In verse five, he says, I will draw near to you. So again and again, we see this idea of where is God? Where's the God of justice? He's coming. He is coming. This is who is coming. Also notice the messenger there. He says, behold, I send my messenger. He'll prepare a way before me. Kind of what's this about? Uh, Back in those days, it'd be a common practice if royalty is coming somewhere, there's a messenger beforehand that they're coming to proclaim it, that this king is coming, um, and they're also preparing the way, actually making sure there's nothing in the the way of the road, uh, that the path is clear. They're kind of setting out the path and whatever's going. And so that's the picture that we have. Even this messenger the reason it comes into to, to play here is all the more a show that the king is coming. Royalty's coming. The king of kings is, is coming. This is how God responds. And we know this messenger, um, it's quoted in Luke 1.17 to point to John the Baptist. Uh, this is who uh, that is preparing the way for Jesus to come. And that's where we'd see we could even ask the question, uh, you know, preparing a way for, for who? Preparing a way, God says in verse one, for me. For me, that God's not just sending another prophet to do what Malachi is doing, to try to wake up the people and get their attention. The Lord himself is coming. This is huge, what God is, is doing and calling his people to and why it makes sense for him to say, behold, take notice of this. I'm not just sending another messenger. I'm not just sending a a mighty prophet. I myself am going to come. 
who in that later verse brings up this other idea, this, this other messenger, that God himself is the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, right? Again, pointing to Jesus, the messenger of the new covenant, the covenant in his blood. And then the last description that I want to give to when we ask that question of who's coming, we ought to know the end of verse one. Says the Lord of hosts. The picture of who's coming is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. A commander is coming. A warrior king is coming. Pretty serious, right? We're ready to ask, so where is he coming now? So we've talked about who Now where? Which calls to mind that question that the people ask, where is the God of justice? Where is he at? They ask the question in pride because they have an idea of where he should be, right? He should be there dealing with those wicked people. That's that's where God should be. This This is where he should be at. Did they count themselves amongst the people, those bad people that God should come and visit? No way, right? No way. That's not what was on their mind when they were thinking, where's the God of justice? He needs to come and deal with me. And we likely don't either, right? Yet this passage says, when God is coming, and we notice where he's coming to his temple, in verse 1, in verse 2, he's coming uh, as, uh, um, I'm sorry, verse 3, he's coming to the Levites. In verse 5, he's drawing near to you. Where is God coming? He's coming to them. Where is the God of justice? He's showing up at their front doorstep. This is what God's plan is. It's like uh, the, the surprise is here. Where, God, are you? Surprise, I'm, I'm coming for you. This is where I'm coming. Could God want to come and do business with us? We're a kingdom of priests too. And I'm reminded of the verse that Jesus shared uh, that if we see our brother in sin, right? That's where our minds could go. He says, what should we do? Take the log out of our own eye first, right? So that we could see clearly to help our brother, right? A lot of time we're thinking others first when it comes to sin, but this is the only place where God says, it's okay to say me first is when it comes to dealing with sin, right? And it's me first, I need to be dealt with. And it reminds me of uh, a... uh, an early uh, 1900s author, uh, G.K. Chesterton. The Times, uh, they sent an invite to these well-known authors with the question of the day, why is the world so bad as it is? Um, to which he, he replies uh, famously, uh, what's wrong with the world today? Dear sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. That's what we're talking about. Evil mainly isn't a problem that's out there. Evil is a problem 
in here, right? In our hearts. But we're so good at seeing the evil of other people, right? So good at that. And will God deal with the evil of other people? Will God deal? He will. He cares about it deeply. He is going to deal with the evil that's in this world. He is the perfect judge and he'll call account everything. And yet God's passion is to deal with our hearts, right? And that's what we have to deal with first, right? Me first. That I am the problem, that I need forgiveness and cleansing and repentance. God, work on me. We need to get a better glimpse of God's holiness that we would tremble and say like Isaiah, woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is what Isaiah says when he gets a glimpse of God's holiness. Is this your experience in worship? Do you see God's character in sometimes? You tremble at how far you've fallen, at how, of how much you don't meet the standard of God's perfect holiness? If not, you have a lot more in common with the apathetic people of Malachi's day than you might think. May God wake you up. May God wake us up. May we see him high and lifted up like Isaiah. So we saw who's coming. We saw where is he coming. Now let's ask the question, uh, what is he coming for or why? Why is he coming? And in this, we're, we're gonna see two, uh, two things. As he draws near, he's coming to clean his people It's going to lead to worship, and he's also coming to judge and to destroy those who won't be clean. So let's look at that first reason. When God comes, the first result is cleansing that leads to worship. Let's look at this in verse 2 through 4. If you hone in on there, God refers to himself as a refiner's fire, a fuller's soap. Says that he's a refiner which is a, a purifier of metals, right? A refiner, uh, they would heat the metals up, these precious metals so hot that they would melt. All the impurities would come up top and that refiner would carefully scrape off all the impurities, right? All the dross, all the bad stuff, right? That's not the precious metal to the point where he can see his face in the reflection of the, of the precious metals there. And uh, the, the picture of a fuller, a fuller is a launderer, right? Um, the idea here, the fuller is going to take the dirty, filthy clothes and he's going to wash them until they're clean and useful again. This is what a fuller's job is to do. You see the word picture that God's given us? Jesus is the refiner of our souls. He is the launderer of our lives. He comes in and he washes away 
all the sin until the father sees the reflection of his pure and perfect son in us. Titus 2.14 says that Jesus gave himself up for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, his very own possession and joy. Believer, because of the works for Jesus, that, that Jesus has done for you, you are clean in God's sight. You exchange your filthy rags for the glorious, clean, and perfect, righteous robes of Jesus. He has made you fit to offer true worship that is beautiful and sweet to God. And this is what Jesus delights to do. He delights to clean his people. Ephesians 5 says that Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. Big idea here? God overflows in delight for his people, and he's committed to sanctifying them. This is what he's going to do when he comes. What is he going to do? He's going to purify his people. He's going to clean them. And it says there in verse 4, and verse 3 and verses 4, it's going to lead to them offering offerings and righteousness. It's going to lead to worship that is pleasing to the Lord, that God delights in. This is, this is what he's going to do. Our second reason that we see of what he's going to do is that as he draws near, he's going to draw near for judgment. That's the second thing. We can see this in verse five. He says, I will draw near to you for judgment. And then it lists out a number of things that God's going to take quick action against. These are the very things that Malachi's brought up too. A lot of them anyway. Idolatry, adultery, apathy. And for those that don't repent, God is going to destroy in judgment. That's, that's what we see here in verse 5. And that's really the consistent teaching of Scripture, right? God comes and, and he calls us to repentance, right? He points out the sin in our lives and he calls us to repentance. And those that won't turn from their sin will be open to, to God's destruction, right? This is what Jesus taught as well. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish, is, is what Jesus said and he said in love, calling people to God's mercy, right? God's judgment is there and it calls us to run to God. So we see what God plans to do in his coming. He's coming to clean and purify. He's coming to judge and destroy. And the, the last question on, the, on this one of God's response is when? When is he coming? And I, I, that's a, it's a fair question. Um, what time period is this passage talking about? And I, and I want to say before I dig into it and get, uh, go through a number of details for us, uh, it's an important question, but it's ultimately, this isn't the main point of what the scripture is about. The main point is calling God's people out of apathy, calling them to repentance, right? Calling them uh, to, to cleansing and worship. Not about figuring out exactly when all of these things happen. I'll explain a little bit uh, 
that's one of the things that's hard about uh, prophecy and a lot of the Old Testament prophecy that gives, it gives a clear picture of the coming Messiah. There's no doubt about that, right? And one of the things that we love to do during this time of year is our Advent studies where we, where we see God's faithfulness and his promises in the Old Testament pointing to Christ who would come and be our king, right? Be our Messiah, deliver his people from sin entirely. But a lot of those same prophecies, you see um, what you don't see really clear is where the first coming stops and where the second coming starts. It can mingle up a bit as they're looking for in the future. And it, the scriptures say kind of longing to look into the mystery that God has in, in his son that he's going to send. And we see a, a, a bit of that in this one as well. So this idea of when um, we, we totally see what, what I pointed out earlier, John the Baptist, right? Coming as a messenger to prepare the way for Jesus, God's son, who would be born into this world through the Virgin Mary. We see um, even from John's ministry, right? He came to prepare the way before the Lord and his ministry was a ministry of uh, repentance, right? He came and he called people to repent and many people did so much so that it offended the religious you know, leaders of that time. Many people did, and because they responded to John, the one that prepared the way from the Lord, when Jesus shows up on the scene and begins preaching, they acknowledge that something, that, that, that God is doing a work here, and they're ready. They're, they are ready to receive the forgiveness of sins that's offered through the gospel, that's offered through Christ's sacrifice, because of the work that John did, just like it says to preparing the way. And then we also know there were some that weren't ready, right? They didn't respond to John's call to repentance and his baptism. And so Jesus shows up on the scene and they are not ready for him. They reject him and secure their judgment, just like it says here. Just like it shows that picture of God coming to cleanse that leads to worship and God coming to judge. People respond to John, they're ready for the cleansing that's offered through Christ's blood. People reject John and they also end up rejecting Jesus and they're judged. And so could say, uh, we see some things that are clear from the first coming of Christ, but there's also some words that are here in Malachi that is more than that. So things like uh, talking about the, the Lord of armies, uh, that when he's coming, who can stand? You know, who can stand before him? Uh, that he's going to bring judgment uh, on, on the wicked there. We don't see those things in, in Jesus' first coming, right? Uh, coming as a warrior king that destroys his enemies. Uh, we don't see those kinds of things in, in his first coming. And so some would say, this has got to be, pointing to the, the final judgment, um, right? And, and that's a, I think that might be the case. Uh, there's other ways to interpret this. And I think there's, there's godly expositors, teachers of God's word on both sides. Uh, my thought in studying this is it points uh, not to the final judgment, but to the judgment that God brings on Jerusalem. Uh, God destroys Jerusalem in AD 70 along with the temple He's shown as the Lord of armies, leading the Roman army to come in and uh, 
completely destroy and overthrow the city. Uh, Jesus' prophecy that not one stone would be left on another is fulfilled uh, then as well. In AD 70, the histories point out that the Christians weren't even there uh, for that, uh, that they had actually left the city uh, before the siege uh, started happening. And I could see that as a fulfillment, but ultimately I do want to come back around to say uh, it's important. We definitely see fulfillment of this in Christ, that he came as a purifier of our souls, that John the Baptist prepared the way for him. That's clear from Luke 1.17. There's other parts of, is it the second coming? Is it this? That That's not the main part of the passage, right? Um, and so we could spend a lot of effort trying to figure out where does this fit in, but that's not really what this is about. Um, God hasn't given us this so we could fit it into our nice boxes of eschatology, right? The study of end times. He's given it to, to this word to those people, calling them out of apathy, right? Calling them to repentance, calling them to cleansing and warning them that if they don't, there'd be judgment. So to conclude the sermon the, is the last point. I want to reflect on the good news that is woven throughout all the scripture and that we can see here as well. We're made to live with God. We're too filthy to live in his presence because of our sin. Our God has made a way for us, for our cleansing through his son, through his perfect life, through his sacrificial death, through his defeat of sin and the grave. Jesus calls all people to him for forgiveness and cleansing. Without this cleansing, there will be a judgment of hellfire. To say it another way, using some of the word pictures here, the Lord of armies is coming near. He's dressed for battle with the greatest strength, and he's coming near. Where's he headed? Straight for us. You find yourself not as an ally ready to fight alongside him. You find yourself as an enemy, an offender of him. You've desecrated his lands, polluted his people, and dishonored his name. His sights are on you, and he's coming to do business. You realize your peril and that there's no way out. He offers you terms of peace, his terms of peace. His very son has pledged his life for yours and is able to deliver you from judgment. And the terms are clear. Surrender to the warrior king and pledge your full allegiance to him. Receive the peace that the son has secured for you or face the coming judgment to all those who have rebelled against him. So these are the terms of peace. They are amazingly generous and merciful. Yet also fearful knowing the power of the king and what you know you deserve. Entrust yourself to the son. The king is faithful to his promise. There's peace to be found. Um, the last thing I wanna do is just bring up some takeaways for us to consider uh, and how we respond, what God might have shown you, things to keep in mind as, as we're wrapping up here. 
For those of you who have not surrendered your life to God, come to him. Come to him and receive this gift of cleansing that leads to worship. Come to him before it's too late. For those that know and serve Christ, continue to humble yourself to him. Come to him and ask him to search you and to cleanse you, right? Offer again your lives to him, right? That he would have all, all of us, that our worship would be pure and that our obedience would be life-giving. And the last thing is to tremble, to tremble remembering God's justice and holiness and yet to be in awe remembering just the mercy that he's poured out on us, the love that he's poured out on us in his son, the love that he shows us in making us his own people. Let's pray. Oh God, you are good and holy and just and righteous. God, you are awesome and powerful. God, you don't have a beginning. You don't have an end. God, there's nothing that's too hard for you. God, you know all things and can do all things. You are amazing. God, we pray that we would be in awe of you. God, we pray that you would be our refiner. God, that you would be our launderer. God, that you would search our hearts and cleanse us. God, that, that there would be nothing that holds us back um, from worship. God, and so as we transition to a time of singing and a time of reflection, God, we pray, search us. Lord, may our worship before you be pleasing. God, may that be what's the desire of our hearts. We love you and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.